It was a midterm election year. The economy was beginning to look a bit shaky again, and the Democrats were in danger of losing their majorities in Congress. The Democratic president, gathering his congressional troops in the White House to rally them ahead of a tough campaign, knew just the right note to strike. He acknowledged that the economy was a problem, but the president reminded his fellow Democrats that whatever happened, their party would never let the economic burden fall upon the American people as Herbert Hoover had during the Great Depression. The president in question was not Hoover's successor, Franklin Roosevelt, nor was it Harry Truman or even John F. Kennedy. The president was Lyndon Johnson. The year was 1966 and Herbert Hoover had, by now, been out of office for 33 long years. Hoover, who had been known as the great humanitarian before he assumed the office of the presidency in 1929, was, for the rest of his life, the symbol of an uncaring and aloof government and the noose around the Republican Party's electoral chances for over three decades. Historians, most of whom lived through the Great Depression and admired FDR's New Deal, initially played a key role in making sure that this negative image of Hoover stuck. But since his death in 1964, America's first Quaker president has gone through a reassessment that has attempted to rehabilitate Hoover in the eyes of the American people. So today on American History 2, we ask a simple question. Does Hoover deserve this reassessment, or does he deserve to be remembered as one of the worst presidents ever to occupy 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? So hello and welcome to the 21st episode of American History 2. I'm Malcolm Craig, joined as always by my good friend and colleague Mark McClay. Hello Malcolm, great to be back. It feels like it's been too long since we recorded a podcast. Yep, apologies for the slight delay in this episode, uh, but hopefully uh, it'll be worth the wait. And we're joined today for the second time uh, by our friend, uh, Edinburgh University PhD student Alistair Duthie. Thank you for having me again. I'm looking forward to uh, defending Hoover a wee bit more today. Well, somebody has to. (laughs) So this is something about a follow-up, or almost like a prequel uh, to the episode that we did with Alistair on the Great Depression. Yeah, that was what was the ninth episode we ever did. I think so, something like that. It is the one that still infuriates me the most, as the person who does the producing is the one that sounds the worst. Not that it was anywhere, it wasn't Alistair's fault whatsoever. Uh, uh, I I think it was just basically our recording space that time. And I think we, we touched on Hoover in that podcast, but we only gave him about five minutes. Um, so I think this podcast will give us a good chance to kind of get into the sort of heart of the historical debate. And I have a slightly changed opinion of Hoover since then, so I'm looking forward good. to it. Good. I'm looking forward to uh, being the arbiter in a vigorous debate between the two of you. So before we get started, a couple of things we'd like to highlight that are coming up. Uh, we have been working with the British, British Association for American Studies, uh, US Studies Online uh, blog, and... Uh, And we are doing an entry that is going to be coming out on the 29th of February Mm. about our podcast on the AIDS crisis, uh, reflecting on how we researched it, what we felt about it and why we did it. And it's great to be working with Bass, uh, you know, on this kind of thing. And hopefully that will lead to more kind of collaborative efforts in the future. Yeah. And I think if I mean, if you enjoy the podcast and you enjoy like sort of the this sort of semi interviews we've done with other like sort of postgraduate students, that's a sort of space where they go to write. Um, so it's a lot to, to get a sort of fresh new angle on American history research it's a good place to go it's United States Online the the address to go to is www.bass.ac.uk slash USSO and finally Malcolm you recently have a new article published in the International History Review I hear yes it's on uh 
America, Britain, the international media, Pakistan's nuclear weapons program and the roots of the idea of the so-called Islamic bomb uh, in the 1970s. Uh, Another bestseller. Another, well, it's going to be, it's, it's flying off the newsstands as we speak. And also, Mark, just one final thing for you. Uh, I couldn't help but notice that you'd written uh, an article for a sort of academic debate website, The Conversation, yeah. about the current American election and reflecting on the election it's most similar to. Yeah, no, I put my neck on the line and said that Hillary Clinton's going to win the presidential election. So for no other reason than the fact I put my neck on the line, if she could do me a solid and pull that out of the bag so I don't look like an idiot seven months from now. Uh, but yeah, I, I've noticed a lot of similarities to do with the 1988 presidential election, but maybe that's something we'll come on to discuss uh, when we have our next guest on who who's talking about those years and Joe Ryan Hume in, in next month. But uh, yeah, maybe we should go on to Hoover yeah. now. Or maybe let's let's go with our opening question, actually, very quickly, uh, which relates to kind of the Hoover, pres- Hoover presidency or ideas of the presidency. And it was suggested by the University of Reading's uh, Daffod Townley. And it is, what is your most and least favourite presidential election slogan? Alistair. Um, I have to say the one that is uh, quickly becoming my least favourite at the moment is Donald Trump's Let's Make America Great Again, which I hope does not become a campaign slogan uh, of any lasting impact. But um, is, that because, is that because you want my article to be correct? That's really kind of you. <laughs> I, I thought, I'm thinking along the same lines there. I think, yeah. Um, but Hoover's uh, A Chicken in Every Pot and a Car in Every Garage from 1928 was just unfortunate, really. Uh, but it gives insight into the goals of his administration. To, to sort of to, to, to parse out from the, the slogan, does Hoover not also say something about eradicating poverty? I'm just getting in an early shot um, for what we're going to be discussing later. Well, keep your powder dry <laughs> for now. We'll have plenty of time for this. So, Mark, what are your favourite and least favourite slogans? Well, the serious answer for the, the favourite slogan is uh, it has to be Happy Days Are Here Again, the, the FDR slogan in 1932. I'm kind of a politics of hope, optimism sort of guy. Uh, I'm not not a fan of uh, those who, who let's say, take advantage of people's fears uh, to get into office. And a sort of less serious favourite one has to be an anti-FDR slogan, though, from 1940, where obviously FDR is running to be re-elected for the second time, and the the slogan was, no man is good three times. So um, the worst has to be Nixon now. I mean, I think that says everything about the creativity behind the Nixon team. Nixon now. But I mean, not as good as his 1960 slogan, I don't think. No, no. And maybe they learn from the lessons of they can't lick our dick. That that is true. I'm noting a certain sort of sexual tension in many of the ones that you're you're bringing up. Yeah, here. well, like I said, I haven't even mentioned Al Smith's one to do with prohibition about you know Al Smith can make your wet dream. So that that's another one. These are out there. I'm not making them up. Moving right. swiftly <laughs> on. Moving swiftly on. Well, mine would be uh, my favourite one is actually from again one of the losing sides, uh, Walter Mondale. In 1984, uh, the pithy Where's the Beef, mm-hmm. which came out of the, the primary uh, season rather than the, the electoral campaign itself. But then the pithy Where's the Beef, I like that. Mm-hmm. The worst uh, is from the 1852 election. Uh, I remember it well. Yes, indeed. Uh, we poked you in 44, we shall pierce you in 52, from Franklin Pierce's electoral campaign, which literally makes no sense how at do, all. How does it not make sense? James K. Polk won in 1944. Because Polk... Franklin Pierce is running in 1852. Isn't isn't a word. And it also implies we're going to do something damaging to you. We shall pierce you. That's not good. I don't know. I think it was a campaign slogan for the ages, if I'm being honest. I think it's ahead of its time. 
It's better than a chicken in every pot or whatever that was. <laughs> Let's move swiftly on. <laughs> so today, finally, we get around to the fact that we're going to consider the presidency of Herbert Hoover, uh, who, it must be admitted, is a much maligned man, supposedly made the Great Depression greater, and has always stood in the shadow of his successor, Franklin D. Roosevelt. However, as was pointed out at the very start of the podcast, in recent years, Hoover, his presidency, his character and his influence have been reassessed by a number of historians. Uh, and I'd like to start by getting a big question out of the way first. Hoover, he was just kind of rubbish as president, wasn't he? Alistair. I'll start off my, my Hoover defence um, by really arguing that it was just more complex than that. We've got to think about the context. Um also, his pre-presidential career, you know, he's one of the most hardworking individuals to enter American politics, I think, and to ever occupy the presidency. Uh, and in many ways, I think you see his ideas going into the presidency as something, he's something of a, a visionary and a, an, an idealist. And that campaign slogan of, um, or the, the speech that Mark was referring to, that uh, we are nearer today to the ideal of the abolition of poverty and fear from the lives of men and women than ever before in any land really kind of sums up his uh, his sort of ideology going into the, the into his um, into the election campaign. I would say it sums up how wrong he was and how yeah, like I think whoever's wrong man, wrong time. He's um, a charisma vacuum at a time when the nation needed a leader. I would argue he's also a terrible politician. Uh, at a time when the nation needed someone who could work with Congress. So we're already two for two. Um, the presidency, you know, was his first ever elected office. And I think it showed, you know, he didn't even have a tough election. You know, like any Republican, you know, you could have pinned the, the GOP elephant on anyone. You could, have, you could have probably even put it on Al Smith, who lost as a Democrat, and you would have still had the Republican win the election because peace and prosperity were going around. So Hoover didn't ever have to prove himself to the American people. And he also has this wonderful habit of putting his foot in his mouth. I mean, like, Alistair's already referenced the, the quote about, you know, being so close to ending poverty in 1928. And then, in, you know, mid-1930, you know, the depression is underway, but no, everyone's not quite sure if it's going to be a full-on depression yet. Whoever's sure it's not. Um, and uh, from David Kennedy, the historian, notes that when a delegation turns up at the White House in mid-1930 looking for the, you know, the federal government to spend a wee bit more on public works to help out, Hoover advised them that they were, quote, 60 days, 60 days too late, the depression is over. So there you go, Herbert Hoover, a bit rubbish and not very good at, you know, bold statements. So two bold opening gambits there, I think. So, well, that, I mean, they're two quite divergent views on our subject of today. So I'd, I'd like to kind of dig into the nuances and detail of all of this. So, Mark, I'd like to turn back to you. Where, where does the view that Hoover is so awful come from? And briefly, why is it the case? It's an expression of the American people who lived through the Hoover years. Um let me just name some things that were named after Hoover. Hoovervilles, um, which everyone knows, you know, generally were like the shanty towns where people who were homeless and nowhere else to live, partly because Hoover wouldn't engage the federal government and giving them any relief, um, had to set up camp in places like Central Park and New York and all over America. They become, became known Hoovervilles, but that's not all. You had Hoover blankets, which were old newspapers that were used as a blanket for those sleeping rough. You had Hoover flags, which were an empty pocket that had been turned upside inside out to show that the person didn't have any money. You had Hoover leather, 
which was cardboard that was used to line a shoe where the sole had been worn through because the, the person who owned it couldn't afford to buy new shoes. And finally, probably my favourite, the, favorite, the Hoover wagon, um, which was a car that was being pulled along by horses because the owner couldn't afford fuel. But I mean, surely, I mean, those are important, but that's just the way the president's name gets attached to certain things. That could have happened to, to any president at the time. But you know, what about the historiography? What does that contribute to our understanding of Hoover? Right. Well, while while I'm sure you know Alistair is going to make the valid point that much of the early historiography, which I referred to in the opening vignette as you know being anti-Hoover, is written by unabashed FDR admirers. You know, most of these historians also lived through the Hoover years. You know, you have guys like William Luchtenberg, who was who was growing up in the Great Depression. He was born in 1922. Arthur Schlesinger was born in 1917. Richard Hofstadter, born 1916. All these men did not like Herbert Hoover. And they lived through a time when the American people believed that Hoover was an ineffectual and uncaring president. I mean, Hoover's just lucky there wasn't an accurate polling mechanism about in the 1930s. He'd probably made George W. Bush's like final numbers look slightly better. Um, and while we can sit back as historians and parse through his records and note some of the achievements he had, he fundamentally failed in one of the primary jobs of being a president, and that's leadership. The American people lost faith in him, and for whatever reason, whether it be his lack of charisma or his failed attempts at stalling the onset of the Great Depression, Hoover was unable to turn it around. Just take a look at the electoral map of 1932. That tells you all you need to know about Herbert Hoover's presidency. So I can see Alistair cracking his knuckles and readying himself for a fight uh, here. So, Alistair, let's turn to a more positive or at least revisionist view of Hoover. So, mentioned a moment ago, there's been a spate of Hoover revisionism. Could you possibly outline so where it's come from and what the main themes of the revisionism of Hoover and his presidency are? I think going back to Mark's point uh, about these Hoovervilles, Hoover blankets, it's very, it's very clear that historians, uh, social commentators, journalists at the time were surrounded by these kind of references uh, and constructed many of them. Um, and the Democratic uh, National Committee and the publicity section of the committee did a fantastic job of using all of that ammunition and coming up with some of these uh, terms to really attack Hoover. And that those attacks lasted through the 1930s into the 1940s. And Hoover, it took such a long time for that image to be deconstructed. Um, the balance really started to shift um, in the early 1960s when Hoover was still alive. Uh, he, he, he died in 1964. Um, and I think in the early 1960s, you've got historians like William, William Appleton Williams um, in the contours of American history and also Carl Daigler, who was um, in the ordeal of Herbert Hoover, started to take a more balanced approach to and ask really questions about why was Hoover really was Hoover really so uncaring was he really a do-nothing president and they started to explore they started to put Hoover in the context of the times and started to explore really what new deliberalism was all about and why Hoover was so reluctant for the country to go in that direction um and it really started to centre around this idea of uh, voluntarism and associationalism as well. And it was, it was the idea that Hoover was actually trying to preserve the American system. 
he was trying to maintain the the structure of the American political system and decentralized um maybe decentralized planning and initiative but um or sorry sorry let me rephrase that centralized planning and initiative and then decentralized execution so the the states and um states retained their power they could implement whatever they needed to do and the federal government was there just to kind of shepherd it along um and but the, it really shifted after 1966 because that's when the hoover library opened to researchers so you've got people like John Huff Wilson making a case, solid case for Hoover as a progressive. Um, and then David Berner's biography that came out in 1979 was, is really, it still stands as probably the most balanced. And can we see kind of, is this continuing into the late 20th and into the 21st century? It does. It, I mean, Hoover's legacy has really received a sort of double blow from history because, I mean, this is something that we'll maybe move into, but it's this initial sort of bout of revisionism was tended to come down on the side that Hoover was not a do-nothing president, but he wasn't, you know, an activist in the New Deal sort of sense of the word. Um, But there were historians that did go as far as that and say that Hoover actually set out what was to become most of the, the blueprint for what would become the New Deal. So depending on your political stance and how you approach those specific issues that completely changes your perspective on hoover so he's either too hands-on or too hands-off and that moves with the times yeah i mean i i find the sort of evolving hoover historiography you know quite interesting because you sort of have the the sort of excuse for hoover sympathizers at first was oh he's been over shit like you know no man would have looked good as the man who came before for before Franklin Roosevelt, like how how do you match up to FDR? And you're like, um, even people that don't necessarily like FDR would say, you know, the man's just had his reputation damaged because of that, because of being in the shadow. And now it's sort of switched around to be like the way to then justify Hoover is to go, oh well, actually though, he's before FDR and he is dreaming up all these programs. The FDR is going to come along and implement, which just isn't true. Like I, we'll get into the detail of that. Hoover start makes makes tentative tentative steps towards this, a lot of the time kicking and screaming. Um, but yeah, I I just don't buy this. I don't buy the Hoover father of the New Deal aspect at all. I was just going to make one one last point on that. Um, you know that comment that I mean Hoover. There's a like Joan Hoff Wilson's argument really tried to bring Hoover back into the sort of bull moose progressive uh, mold of the Republican Party, or that branch of the Republican Party. And it's actually, I think, more helpful now to look at Hoover as, I mean, his, the thing, the, his two kind of guiding principles were the preservation of the American political system and providing equality of opportunity for all. So if you try and place him on the political spectrum, it's very difficult to do that because either if you think of him as progressive, you 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 see why does he not get on with the conservatives in the republican party and if you place him as a conservative then he's asked why does he not get on with the progressive insurgents in his party so it's very uh to try and re- remove him from that political spectrum actually opens up a whole load of new questions that um have been very i think are very helpful for trying to assess hoover's lasting legacy as well well let's turn away for a moment from the historiographical perspectives and get down to brass tacks and the big event that comes to define 
Hoover and his presidency, the October 1929 Wall Street crash and the Great Depression that follows. I mean, a global financial meltdown. And as we've talked about already, Hoover is often seen as being able to handle the consequences of the crash and the depression and actually does more to exacerbate the worst effects of the depression than anything else. And Alistair, as you've already kind of alluded to, I assume this is a big area for, for Hoover revisionists, his responses to the crash and depression. And how exactly have they, they approached this? Well, some of the, the earliest attempts to actually look at uh, Hoover's response to the depression actually started, uh, somebody like um, Ellis Hawley actually looked at his career as Secretary of Commerce and attempted to look at the earliest stages of Secretary of Commerce when under the Harding administration when he actually took a very active role in the depression and the dip of the early 1920s. And there's this is where the case starts to be made that he actually intervened quite heavily by um, organizing conferences, uh, trying to work with corporate corporations and the leaders of big business. Can I just to, say, Hoover loves organizing a conference. <laughs> right, that you think, and I think that's what he thinks he's so, the solution to of everything is. If I just arrange a conference, you know, he he's, all, he's an academic. He should have been, <laughs> he should have been a PhD student <laughs> or an academic. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, this, I mean, the use of conferences for him was um, was a way to bring the people who he believed were influ- influential to the table. And to this is the idea of centralized planning, decentralized execution. And he would bring them to the conference, put his position across, try and get everybody to work together. For example, maintain wages or um, keep up kind of public works or pushing for them to just extend their, their business sort of activities, I guess. Um, to just, it was kind of this tinkering that was, in his view, would quickly solve the problem because, I mean, I, I'm not an economist, um, but you see his kind of logic behind it. And and was he essentially searching for consensus? He was. He was trying to get, you know, get parties to work together. And as an engineer, I mean, this is, this is the thing about Hoover and why biographies of Hoover have actually been quite revealing of his presidency, his pre-presidency and his post-presidency, because... As an engineer, that was in his kind of DNA to go into a situation and work out all the component parts, master the situation with all the information available to him, and then implement it, but in a very, you know, sort of behind the scenes way. So as Um, as one final point here, so would you argue that Hoover essentially being more activist than he gets given credit for, certainly in popular memory, mm -hmm. he almost sets the template for what FDR does? with his very activist involvement in trying to solve the Great Depression? I think Hoover tries to do it, as I say, behind the scenes. But what's needed with the Depression and what Hoover doesn't have the capacity to do is to add personality to that and be a face, be a figurehead for... And that's. I, I think it's actually a, a really good indicator of where American politics is going more generally, where... Things like the press as well, the way that they're, um, their uh, focus is turning to the personality of the president. This is something that Woodrow Wilson struggled with, something that Harding and Coolidge were able to maybe withdraw from because there wasn't a crisis. It wasn't like the First World War. Well, the famous or, headline about Coolidge in 1925, 
Hmm. President, sick of loafing, seeks something to do. Who knew you'd be able to jam that into two podcasts? I can, I can jam <laughs> Calvin Coolidge into anything. So let's let's turn for a moment. Mark, I'm going to make a wild stab in the dark that you're going to offer us something that maybe stands against what Alistair has just said. Yes, I mean, Alistair mentioned the, the idea of voluntarism uh, or associationalism or whatever word historians are choosing to use right now. If voluntarism is a lovely idea. It really is. Get everyone in a room together, have a wee conference, you know, hash out an agreement that everyone will work in the best interests of the nation, as Hoover does um, in November 1929, a month after the Wall Street crash. You know, he gets business leaders not to cut wages um, or um, and to try and get them to guarantee they won't lay off workers. Um, even Henry Ford goes away from it and says, I'm going to raise my workers' wages because Henry Ford was such a bang-up guy. We'll maybe have to do a podcast on him one day. Uh, spoiler, he wasn't. Um, Raging anti-Semite. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, So, and these businesses, either the, the whole tenuous agreement that they signed up to lasts like two or three months before they start slashing wages and slashing workers, or they keep wages at the level they were at and slash the workers anyway, Um and he also makes an appeal for charity to pick up the slack where government isn't, you know, like everyone mucking together. Charity goes up, not even remotely by enough, though. Um, it's woefully it's inadequate. The David Cameron's big society. I wouldn't dare to comment on a current political uh, thought. But, uh, yeah, no, basically, Hoover's method, voluntarism is so woefully inadequate for the times. And it's not that it's a bad idea. It's that once it's not working... Hoover fails to change course. He doesn't listen to people who are telling him that this isn't enough. As, you know, William Luchtenberg, who I'd argue is probably one of the more fairer um, historians of the era to, to Hoover. He doesn't completely take him to task and he acknowledges the promising things he does. But who, but Luchtenberg's notes, you know, quote that Hoover's failure lay in his refusal to admit the collapse of his program and in his rigid rejection of the need of a new course. And he even begins to dis- distrust his own advisors, telling him that unemployment's going up because we've got to remember that at this time there isn't actually reliable statistics for unemployment. Ironically, those don't begin until 1932 and who had actually asked for them to be collected? Herbert Hoover at the President's Conference on Unemployment in 1920-21. So are you saying one of the problems here with Hoover is his unwillingness to you go beyond the idea that you you can get by by having a pull yourself up by your bootstraps rugged individualism kind of ideology here. Yeah, yeah, and this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna take uh, Alistair to task on his use of the word visionary. Um, <laughs> right, so that this is where I just can't see Hoover as a visionary because he, he fails to sort of get past this. Yes, he's not a laissez-faire do-nothing president, but he also doesn't envisage the fact that. Society has changed. This isn't no Americans don't live in rural and small town America. All like you know, the, there is a lot of urban America now. In the 1920 election, you have half urban, half rural. In urban areas, you can't. It's not close knit communities that take care of you. Take, take care of you when something goes. When you say if you lose your if if you're if you're broke in a rural or small town community, the community can maybe pull together and help you out. That doesn't happen in New York City. That doesn't happen in Chicago. Um, so, like, just because, and and I don't buy also the fact that because all the other Republicans and most Democrats didn't see the need for public relief either, that gets them off the hook. 
I, you know, it's the same way that Lyndon Johnson doesn't get off the hook for Vietnam all because 95% of the people thought that you should stay in there. Um, and yeah, I, I just think that, that Hoover hasn't realised that the times have changed. Um, and even vetoes the Garner-Wagner Act in 1932, which would, would have given much more relief um, to those that desperately needed it that were living in the Hoovervilles. I think, I mean, you, t- you touched on the point there that... Um... Hoover made a, an effort to collect the unemployment figures and he said that that was something that needed to be done and that um, the I think this is obviously like something that we will never know and as historians we can't really speculate about but if Hoover had succeeded and uh, had a second term I think it would have been so interesting to see what happened because not only did he attempt to collect figures for unemployment but he launched these two reports on recent economic trends and recent social trends. And in the lead up to the 1928 election, that's when he started to use some of the data he collected as Secretary of Commerce and then had actually created a team to, of advisors to go out and research, you know, how America had changed, how, where it was going. And he sought to implement that into this kind of reform vision for what he wants to achieve as president. Just to pick you up then, because the, you've talked a lot about the Secretary of Commerce part here. Now, did Calvin Coolidge not famously say that, you know, that man has offered me six years of unsolicited advice, none of it good? Like, do, like so if a lot of the revisionism is centering on, oh, no, no, don't look at his presidency. He was really good before that. You know, like, is do, do you do you think that Who's right, Coolidge or these historians? I think Calvin Coolidge is the last person <laughs> we should be touching on as an authority on almost anything. The fact that Calvin Coolidge bothered to open his mouth and speak tells me that he had something to say. True, it, it must have been important. Alistair, sorry. No, I think I mean the Coolidge, the Coolidge and the Harding administrations are also maybe something that needs to be subjected to more historical um, analysis because... I mean, Hoover such, plays such a dominant role in both those administrations, but he's such a divisive figure already. He starts kind of closing section, other sections of the, um, I forget exactly which one it was, but he, he merged them into the commerce department so that he could better control their, so their activities. And I think his, uh, I think he was, he could be a very confident person and he was always weighing in on, you know, things that Coolidge believed just better be left and just kind of they could just everything's you know Coolidge took that si- silent good old cowl, silent cow stay, stay cool with Coolidge <laughs> yeah to that approach where he's just like hands off if it's not broken don't try and fix it and Hoover was up the other end of the spectrum thinking things can always be improved and made more efficient and I think the two just just clashed that's the engineering I'm coming out again yeah. so Alistair I'd like to nail you down to some specifics here talked a lot about the you know, big ideas and historiography and everything. Are there any accomplishments of the Hoover presidency that you feel stand out as, as being worthy of praise? I think the Hoover accomplishments, um, I think he brought this forward-looking kind of reform vision to Washington. And in the context of the Depression, um although it's maybe not a positive to take away from the Hoover administration itself, but the impact it would have, whether he was the blue... I mean, instead of coming down to an argument and saying that Hoover laid the groundwork for the New Deal, I think what he did do was bring this need for 
there to be some kind of vision or some kind of uh what's the word it's yeah just like a reform-minded kind of approach to politics Mm. instead of you know a decade of changing the milieu yeah (laughs) and unfortunately the depression made that impossible for hoover to to implement that and i guess the negative legacy of the hoover administration and then laid the groundwork for the new deal and the recovery um I'm going to have to turn to Mark now and ask about specific failures. And I have got a horrible feeling I know what's coming and it's something we promised never to talk about. Yeah, Mark. This is a one-off. I'm sorry, Malcolm, but I'm going to have to break with the American History 2 precedent and and, and avowed tradition uh, and bring up uh, the tariff. Oh, no, (laughs) not the tariff. So it it really does upset me to do so, but in this case, it's that disastrous that it has to be done. So the the Smoot-Hawley tariff, as it was called... The best of all tariffs, I think (laughs) you'll find. I I think you'll find it's the worst of all. Uh, So uh, this is a prime example of Hoover's weak leadership. Um, Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds of the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, you'll be glad to know. But basically, it throws up these big protectionists trade walls around America more than there already was. Like, you know, there was already very protectionist. It was all about trying to protect um, the American farmer, first of all, but also um, lots of other workers. But by the time it's passed in 1930, most of the people that were for it are all are now against it. A lot of the pressure groups, as Eric Rauchway points out, the historian. Um, and a thousand economists write to Hoover, and one of the, the main, the heads of General Motors, I think it is, gets down on his knees and pretty much begs Hoover to veto the Smoot-Hawley tariff because, you know, they can see the disaster around the corner that's going to happen. It's going to hurt world trade at the very time that you need people to be trading because, you know, the Great Depression is, is coming on here. And Hoover, I think partly because, and Alistair might correct me on this, my reading of it is Republicans generally hated Herbert Hoover. They called him Wonder Boy behind his back and mocked him. You know, we've already talked about Coolidge. And I think Hoover just sort of acquiesces to what his fellow Republicans beg him to do because this is part of the Republican Party's platform and he signs the bill. And the Smoot-Hawley tariff is a disaster. And it sort of signals to the rest of the world that America is, is throwing up walls and it's closed for business. Like you can't export and import with America. It's too expensive now. And so the rest of the world, also going through a tough time, looks around and goes, do you know what? Well, fine then. We'll throw up our own t- tariffs and everything. And Canada does it. Britain does it. All these different countries do it. And you have world trade grinding to a halt, decreased by a quarter or something on the, off the back of all these actions. Um, and this throws countries in Europe into further economic crisis, even Germany, which is already in a very big crisis. So Here we go. <laughs> So I think there's an argument that the Smoot-Hawley tariff is the key reason for the outbreak of World War II. Remember, <laughs> remember, kids, you heard it here first. Not Nazi Germany or resurgent Japanese militarism, but the Smoot-Hawley tariff is the cause of World War II. Come back at that, Alistair. I think that by the time the Smoot-Hawley tariff was signed, the damage was done. There was no going back. Um but for a little bit more, I think to, to add a couple of details to that for the reasons why Hoover signed it, um, it, it definitely shows a degree of weak leadership. Um, 
But the two kind of important points to take away, I mean, overall, the tariff was something that had been a back and forth with Republicans almost found this kind of routine way of dealing with the tariff through the 1920s. They knew what size each of them came down on. And they were just, you know, it was kind of, as you mentioned, in the 1928 uh, platform, tariff protection was built into the platform. So it was a way where raising the tariff is also has to be seen as an extension of attempts to improve the agricultural sector of the economy, which is already in decline. Um, but it also, I think, was an opportunity for Hoover to kind of get some, it, it did display a degree of an attempt to to exert some kind of influence in the Republican Party or to try and br- to crystallize his kind of position as leader um, and to find some kind of solidarity. But uh, one point that he did build into the tariff was this kind of flexibility. It was a uh, flexible tariff provision, which is maybe getting into the details a bit, but it basically for him, it was a success because, and by signing it, he transferred more of the, the power to change the the tariff in the future into the hands of the president and taking it away from Congress. But as I mentioned, by signing it when he did, and even if he did have that flexible provision, the damage was done straight away because other countries raised their tariffs. And- I believe Mark wishes to give further top no. quality tariff chat. No, 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 no. That's enough tariff chat. The tariff chat is boxed off now. Never again. That's it. Um- well, thank God for that. I prefer <laughs> discussing Calvin Coolidge to yeah. talking about the tariff. Right. So I, I want to bring up another failure of the, the Hoover administration. And, and it falls into another thing that, that I'm sure it's to do with the fact it was in the Republican platform. But Hoover does his best to ignore the fact that alcohol prohibition in America is by 1928, Hoover takes office in 1929, it's a clear failure. I mean, you've got a huge, by the time Hoover's in office, and he even commissions a study to tell him this, in which the study then tells him that prohibition isn't working, it's caused the rise in crime, you've got the rise of gangsters like Al Capone, you've got people not obeying the law anyway, and if, and and people tell him, you know, if, if you... If you repeal prohibition, there are some jobs. There's a new industry. And there you know, it's one of the first things Franklin Roosevelt, when he comes in, is with the New Deal he does. And it's Happy the easiest days thing. are indeed here again. Yes, and it's the easiest thing in the world to do. And it would have been just it would have maybe been something just to change the mood in America at the time. Maybe give give a little kickstart there, make give Hoover some popularity, but Hoover just does that thing that where a present get president gets a report that he doesn't like he just pretends it's not there but then it also comes back to the role of the president at this time as administrator it's not his prerogative to say what what's right and what's wrong what should be done on prohibition he has a party stance and a platform that is defending prohibition he's made the promise to enforce it he's received a report which states otherwise but could it's one report, it's a combination of, you know, it's one part of a much larger body of evidence that he'll be accumulating, apart, including this report on recent social and economic trends, which didn't come out until 1930, or wasn't completed until 1933. Um, so I think, I mean, the evidence suggests that Hoover actually was quite, wasn't really decided himself on prohibition. Um there was a rumour that he actually went to the Belgian embassy um, and had a cocktails uh, <laughs> during his presidency. 
um, and as Secretary of Commerce. Um, I think actually, no, Secretary of Commerce, I don't think Wally's president. But as Secretary of Commerce, he would go to the Belgian Embassy and have a cocktail um, every day. <laughs> and who and wouldn't enjoy going to the Belgian Embassy for an old-fashioned and maybe a fine Belgian beer? Mm-hmm. I'd, like to, I'd like to turn both of you, actually, very briefly, okay, to talk about Hoover and his allegedly introverted personality. Uh, because, you know, this is you know, his public face and all that kind of thing. Uh, so, and lack of leadership and all these kind of things. How much do you think, very briefly, this comes down to the personality of the man? I, I think it's, I think it's definitely important. I mean, I think it's understand. I mean, maybe Alistair will touch on this. He'll probably know he's Hoover's childhood a bit better, but I, I, I think it's understandable that Hoover's introverted, but I think it's important in this regard. Um, and I also think it's, I think it's especially important because of what the American people thought they were getting when they elected Herbert Hoover. Um, I mean, Hoover, when he, when he was, when he was uh, inaugurated, the, the journalist, Anne O'Hare McCormack said, quote, we were in the mid for magic. The whole country was a vast expectant gallery, its eyes focused on Washington. We had summoned a great engineer to solve our problems for us. Now we sat back comfortably and confidently to watch the problems being solved. The modern technical mind was for the first time at the head of government, almost with an air of giving genius its chance. We waited for the performance to begin. And this doesn't come from nowhere. This is Hoover's own public relations professionals that built up this image of Hoover um, in the minds of the American people through his time as Secretary of Commerce in, um, in, in the 1920s while he was working for both Harding and Coolidge. But ultimately, his introverted personality means he's not bold enough in what he says. And the furthest he goes is to cheerlead. I mean, the historian, Eric Rowley, he he's, he says, you know, that Hoover saw himself as a cheerleader for the American enterprise, not as a referee, a coach, or player in the economy. And all he had to do was call for teamwork and everything would be fine. So, First we talked about the tariff. Now I have an image of Herbert Hoover in a cheerleader's <laughs> outfit. Thank you. You're welcome. Alistair. Um, I, th- I find sometimes with, you know, the backgrounds of presidents and the way that biographies are constructed, it's, I mean, a lot of the Hoover literature has dealt um, in detail with his Quaker background, but also his background as an orphan, as, you know, he, he really did come from a very poor background where he, he, he did everything to sort of build his career off the back of... Um, really nothing and he became very successful as a might first of all as a mining engineer and then uh, through um and then he raised his profile through his relief work and they used that during the first world war and they used that very um as mark mentioned very effectively during the 1928 campaign and hoover himself was worried about that because he thought that he'd been built up to be some kind of superman and that he wouldn't possibly deliver on what you know the promises that had been made and he also, I mean, his personality has always come across um, as very guarded, very, very private. And but to his closest friends and kind of loyal supporters, he could be very witty. He was very, he seemed to be quite, um, quite a jokey kind of person, but also very. Hence the constant invitations to the Belgian embassy. <laughs> and he, like, he, he did seem to have. Um, quite a good sense of humour about, especially in his, I mean, maybe it's going too far to in his post-presidency, he was, there was actually a really, uh, this caption from a a, a a piece of correspondence I'd looked at from a politician called James Beck, who's a congressional Republican from Pennsylvania. 
And he said, um, I have the feeling that Herbert Hoover may be laughing at the moment. And this was in 1934, 1935, just as the New Deal and, you know, the kind of conservative turn was starting to take place. So I'd like to turn now, actually, his personality and public image, I'd like to turn briefly for the last few minutes of the podcast to the changes that are taking place in journalism and news reporting in America. So after, you know, getting some initial praise, the honeymoon period for Hoover kind of ebbs away uh, rather quickly. So what about his relationship with American journalists, with the, the commentariat and with the emerging as Eric Alterman, whom you're far more familiar with than I, Alistair, would call the punditocracy, mm-hmm. the, you know, the important, significant columnists. I think, I mean, the changes in American journalism during the 20s and the 30s are something that, I mean, has usually been kind of, the, the jazz journalism aspect of it has actually been more prominent in a lot of uh, literature on changes in journalism. But there's a parallel development with this rise of interpretative journalism as well, when Journalists are starting to go beyond uh, presenting just the facts. Um, It goes even beyond sensationalism. It goes to just really providing context to stories. But the argument that's made and the reason that maybe a lot of these kind of political columnists um, start to surface in the 20s and 30s is because by adding context to a story, you're also making it more comprehensible for readers um, issues are, be- are becoming more complex. So they are able to sort of gain a monopoly over the, the, the newspaper market, really, for a lot of readers, particularly high sort of highbrow um, type of journalism, or is more interested in foreign policy and economics. Economics is becoming a big, you know, big topic in journalism. And these sort of experts then are able to gain a great deal of editorial autonomy from um, the publications that they're with. And through syndication, they don't have to rely on the on a single newspaper. They're not just on the staff of that newspaper. They can go to any newspaper. And if one doesn't agree with their views and drops them, they have another one that will take them up. So the result for the Hoover administration is, you know, he's facing a completely different landscape in terms of the type of journalism that's coming up, more interested in personalities rather than the hard-cold facts. And... Um, I believe that the honeymoon with the, the, the Hoover administration with, with journalists actually ended after he, he made this initial promise for far more openness at press conferences. And then he went, even before he was inaugurated, he went to uh, South America on a trip um, to try and escape from Washington. And he brought some journalists on the ship and he made this condition that the stories that were leaving the ship had to go through his press secretary and had to be edited to make sure that they would be um, acceptable. And as soon as he made that decision, I think things just went rapidly downhill. Which contrasts with FDR and the you know the whole kind of news conference thing, and that like yeah. he becomes known as this great friend of the press and being nice yeah. to the press and everything. Walter Walter Lippmann, the great columnist and journalist, I believe, said something particularly significant about commenting about Hoover in the, and I hate myself for saying it, in the aftermath of the entire tariff debacle. Yeah, no, well, Mark. Yeah, Lippmann had been a huge supporter of of Hoover from, from what I can gather. You know, in 1928, he called him a reformer who is probably more vividly conscious of the defects of American capitalism than any man in public life today, which sounds like huge praise, but it's just actually dawned on me that one of the quotes I wanted to mention about Hoover, get back to Lippmann in a second, is Franklin Roosevelt 
who is it? It's during the war, Alistair, isn't it? When Franklin Roosevelt sees what Hoover's doing in the Food Administration, he goes, that man is a wonder. He would make a great president. So uh, there you go. History really does throw up some wonderful quotes. Um, but anyway, so Lippmann, after having seen Hoover during the tariff tobacco, becomes thoroughly disillusioned, as anyone would, you know. Um, and he says, quote, this president had surrendered everything for nothing. He gave up the leadership of his party. He let his personal authority be flouted. He accepted a wretched and mischievous product of stupidity and greed. And from there on, Lippmann and Hoover were not best friends. So, bringing things to a close, Alistair, as far as I'm aware, and you can correct me here, Hoover spends the rest of his life, as we said, he dies in 1964, in opposition to the entire kind of New Deal liberalism and and becomes increasingly conservative over time Mm. up until his death. Obviously, he can't become more conservative after his death. That would be ridiculous. But is that correct? Yeah, I mean, he's he spends, really in his post-presidency, he's initially quite quiet, um, spends, he moves back to California, um, but he finds he's too far away from what's going on in Washington. Uh, but he has insiders who are in Washington kind of feeding him information, and he's kind of feels like he's compiling this dossier of like what his attack is going to be. But he's also very conscious of his historical record. And he does, you know, he has this, uh, there's a period in the 1950s when he's writing his memoirs, when he's just, his sort of dogged defense of what he did and trying to help people understand, you know, why the actions he took, what the actions he took, what the actions were and why he took them. And in the context of New Deal liberalism and then the Second World War, um, Hoover's position does kind of rapidly change and he sort of his legacy now kind of goes with the with the ebb and flow of current events and again you know, in the 1960s you'll know more about this Mark but um, uh, he's there before just before he dies he's at the 1960 Republican Convention and he's at the 1964 Republican Convention yeah, I think but before he dies. I'm not sure if he makes it to that wonderful Cow Palace convention, but yeah, no, he's definitely he's definitely still around in Republican politics and when Barry Goldwater's nominated, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's he has it he's really like you can the, the pictures of him from nineteen sixty four he you know, you can see how the illness has taken the toll. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what about Mark his political legacy while he's still alive? Well, I mean, it's quite simple to be honest. He just becomes a punch bag for the Democrats. Um, and as, as I mentioned in the opening venue, he's a noose around the the, chance, the neck of the Republican Party's chances at election time. And the Republican Party very much struggles um, to free itself from being known as the, the, the party of Hoover. Not that people call him that all the time, although Democrats definitely try. But I think it's always in everyone's head that who was in charge when the Great Depression happened? It was the Republicans in Congress and Herbert Hoover in charge of the presidency. And while FDR and the New Deal does not solve the Great Depression coming, you know, from then on, things start to get better. Unemployment goes down and the economy grows and everything. So the Democrats get credited with the recovery and the astonishing uh, power of FDR's personality, I think, you know, has a huge impact on American politics. But and it's not until Ronald Reagan comes along, I think, that the Republican Party ever really frees itself of Hoover's legacy um, with and the sort of the tumultuous events of the 1960s and early 1970s. So for dramatic effect, which I think has worked quite well, actually, mm-hmm. uh, we had you both representing completely different sides of the, the Hoover debate in a couple of sentences. 
What do you actually think of Hoover? I think, I mean, my, my defense of, defense of Hoover uh, comes from his, his ideas, his vision for America's future, um, which I see as very impressive. And if you put that in the context of what he achieved during the First World War and his, after the Second World War with his relief efforts, his efforts with the Hoover Commission to reorganize and make the executive branch of the federal government more efficient. I mean, he's everything he kind of applied his efforts to was a success, except for his presidency. And I think he, f I think fundamentally, he failed to act on the signs of the oncoming economic disaster. And the Secretary of Commerce, he should have seen that. Um, but then, as Mark mentioned, you know, he failed to compromise in order to adopt a new approach to recovery when it mattered. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Alistair on the point that aside from his presidency, Herbert Hoover has a very admirable life and career. Um, well, I sort of disagree with where he goes after the presidency um, in some senses, and I, I think he becomes a wee bit embittered by, by his experience, which I guess most human beings would. Um, I, used to, I used to sort of buy the revisionism on Hoover a bit more than I do now after preparing even more for this podcast. And even on this earlier this week, I gave a lecture to undergrads where I described Hoover as the like having one foot in the old order and having the one foot in the the new order in terms of a in terms of how government was going. And I don't actually know if I believe that now. Even after doing two more days of reading, I actually think that Hoover's more in the old order um, than I than I thought. And I think that revisionists have gone too far in trying to rehabilitate his image. I think there was a lot of fundamental flaws um, and I just don't think he was as visionary as people are starting to give him credit for. I just want to add one last point to that and I think the, the more you know about Hoover and the, the more you learn about what he was doing either pre and post presidency and even during his presidency, his kind of reaction to certain issues, I think he just becomes more complex and it's very difficult to get really beyond um, actually, to further the debate about where history, where well, Hoover's historical legacy. I think in terms of biography as well, you become naturally more empathetic, mm -hmm. however closer you're getting. Whereas all the original biographies of Hoover just remember what he was like to have as a president. So, so to be incredibly reductionist, good man, wrong time. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's. let's <laughs> well, it's nice to see we've not completely damned Hoover. <laughs> 